This is a recording of Theories and Assumptions, a review of William L. Davis's Visions in a Seerstone, Joseph Smith and the Making of the Book of Mormon, by Brian C. Hales, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, read by Brian C. Hales. Abstract. Within the genre of Book of Mormon studies, William L. Davis's Vision, Visions in a Seer Stone presents readers with an innovative message that reports how Joseph Smith was able to produce the words of the Book of Mormon without supernatural assistance, using oral performance skills that Smith ostensibly gained prior to 1829, his three-month prodigious flow of verbal art and narrative creation became the Book of Mormon. Davis's theory describes a two-part literary pattern in the Book of Mormon, where summary outlines called heads in the text are consistently expanded in subsequent sections of the narrative. Termed laying down heads, Davis insists that such literary devices are anachronistic to Book of Mormon era and constitute strong evidence that Joseph Smith contributed heavily, if not solely, to the publication. The primary weaknesses of the theory involve the type and quantity of assumptions routinely accepted throughout the book. The assumptions include beliefs that the historical record does not support or even contradicts, e.g., Smith's 1829 superior intelligence, advanced composition abilities, and exceptional memorization proficiency, and those that describe Smith using oral performance skills beyond those previously demonstrated as humanly possible, e.g., the ability to dictate thousands of first draft phrases that are also refined final draft sentences. Visions in a Searstone will be most helpful to individuals who, like the author, are willing to accept these assumptions. To more skeptical readers, the theory presented regarding the origin of the Book of Mormon will be classified as incomplete or inadequate. From the first moment in 1830 when Joseph Smith held the newly printed Book of Mormon in his hands, declaring that it came by the gift and power of God, Secularists have rejected all claims of divine assistance. Instead, they have searched for alternate explanations that employ natural forces and human abilities to generate all 269,320 words of the text. Over the ensuing century, two theories dominated the explanatory landscape. Starting in 1833, a conspiracy involving the Spalding Manuscript prevailed until the document was rediscovered in 1884. Since then, the most popular hypothesis has been that Joseph Smith's intellect was sufficient to verbally compose all of the verses, although details of how he did it have never been proposed. If asked, what skills would be needed to dictate a book like the Book of Mormon, the answer has been, the skills Joseph Smith possessed in 1829. If asked, what skills did Joseph Smith possess in 1829? The answer has been, all the skills needed to dictate the Book of Mormon. Even without any details of the methodology Smith ostensibly employed, the circular logic of the intellect theory remains valid for many skeptics. William L. Davis's Visions in a Seerstone, hereafter BSS, 
potentially changes this long-standing dynamic by describing, perhaps for the first time since 1829, how Joseph Smith was able to generate all the sentences of the Book of Mormon naturally. Davis never fully discards the possibility that inspiration played a role, but such influences are never requisite to complete the project. A survey of VSS's theory. Regardless of one's position concerning the actual origin of the Book of Mormon, VSS is groundbreaking because of the level of detail it presents to support its specific thesis. These chapter synopses highlight these details. Preface and Introduction Visions in a Seer Stone begins by describing how the Book of Mormon contains an enormous amount of 19th century material that permeates both the content and the structure of the work. Since it purports to be a history of ancient Americans, the presence of 19th century elements in the text might be unexpected. Visions in a Seer Stone carves out a couple of explanations for Latter-day Saints. Quote, the 19th century anachronisms in the Book of Mormon can be framed as God's alterations to the ancient record, which he transmitted to Smith via the seer stone. End of quote. Or, quote, for those who believe that Smith actively participated in a literal translation, the 19th century elements can be understood as Smith's personal contributions to the translation project. End of quote. After allowing for these possibilities, Visions in a Seer Stone lays out a theory where supernatural influences are unnecessary, quote, I will often streamline the discussion by referring to the work as a result of Smith's individual creative efforts, end of quote. As a result, the 1830 Book of Mormon is described as a script or transcript of Smith's performative process, the artifact of a grander, multifaceted oratorical effort, and as one of the longest recorded oral performances in the history of the United States. In this performance, Smith made use of several techniques that facilitated the process of oral composition, including such methods as, one, the semi-extemporaneous amplification of skeletal narrative outlines, two, the use of formulaic language in biblical and pseudo-biblical registers, three, rhetorical devices common in oral traditions, four, and various forms of repetition, such as recycled narrative patterns, and, lastly, other traditional compositional strategies. Joseph Smith absorbed these techniques from multiple avenues that were found in the oratorical culture in the early 19th century America where he was raised to age 23. Included are daily family Bible reading, domestic education, Sunday schools, church attendance, introductory composition lessons in common schools, participation in a variety of voluntary societies for self-improvement, such as juvenile literary and debate societies, household fireside storytelling practices, public orations, classroom recitation exercises, visits to libraries and bookstores, sermons in church, camp meeting revivals, and involvement as a Methodist exhorter. Prior to even beginning chapter one, Visions in a Seerstone has set the stage for Joseph Smith as a type of thespian narrator, possessing all the human skills necessary to orally perform the Book of Mormon recitation. Chapter one, Seerstones and Western Esotericism. Chapter one provides additional historical context 
by discussing Joseph Smith's involvement with Searstones and his treasure-seeking in the years prior to 1827. The impulse to resist or embellish the dogmas and power structures of established religion encouraged 18th and 19th century seekers to look outside the boundaries of traditional Christianity where a panoply of philosophies and practices awaited the curiosity of those who sought alternative systems of belief among the various traditions of Western esotericism. Smith's use of Searstone to produce the Book of Mormon offers a view in the mystical and financial economies of ritualism, religious experimentation, and spiritual seeking among early Americans. Chapter 2, Laying Down Heads in Written and Oral Composition. Chapter 2 introduces a discovery regarding Joseph Smith's narrative techniques that becomes a bedrock theme throughout Visions in a Searstone. Smith's 1832 history begins with an opening paragraph that provides the readers with a sketch outline of the historical events as Smith wished to emphasize in his narrative. Visions in a Searstone elaborates, quote, Smith's method of using a preliminary outline, or as more commonly termed a skeleton of heads, an outline formed with key summarizing phrases, to organize and arrange his 1832 historical narrative was a standard technique of composition in early 19th century. The explicit use of a skeletal sketch in the opening of the history marking each stage in the sequence of the narrative with a summarizing phrase provides one of the several expressions of methods commonly known as laying down heads. End of quote. Technically, the term laying down heads refers to speakers or writers who present formal partitions in their presentations by declaring to their audiences the heads or chief topics of discourse that will be presented in the forthcoming material. The heads of a sermon, writes Franco Sfenelon in his 1845 book, The Preacher and the Pastor, are great assistance to the memory and recollection of the hearer. They serve also to fix his attention. They enable him to more easily keep pace with the progress of the discourse. They give him pauses and resting places where he can reflect on what has been said and look forward to what is to follow. End of quote. Visions in a Searstone further explains, quote, Laying down heads involves two basic steps. First, the speaker or author created a skeletal outline of his or her intended composition by using a sequence of key phrases or heads that concisely summarize each of the main topics, issues, or divisions of an idea contained within the overall passage that followed. Second, using the skeletal outline as a reference guide, the speaker or author would then elaborate on each key phrase, expanding it into a fully developed passage of oral address or text. End of quote. Visions in a Searstone mentions laying down heads over a hundred times as it argues that Smith borrowed this technique and used it in his personal sermons and histories as well as in the Book of Mormon. Quote, Smith dictated the majority of the opening skeletal outline to one of his scribes. The same method, it should be observed, is consistent with Smith's production of the Book of Mormon, end of quote. Smith's method of laying down heads for his historical narratives emerges as the most prominent and visible composition feature of the Book of Mormon, writes Visions in a Searstone. Chapter 3, Revival Sermons in the Burned-Over District. 
The third chapter discusses how and where Joseph Smith would have learned about laying down heads. Within the whirlwind of religious activity in western New York, Joseph Smith would have experienced a range of revivalist preaching unlike anything he had previously encountered. The speaking techniques of those preachers involved a specific pattern. First, the preparation of a skeletal written outline of the sermon. Second, the preparation of a written sermon skeleton. And third, the preparation of a mental outline during study and meditation, which the preacher retained in his memory and used as a guide during performance without ever committing anything to paper. Smith inherited his oral techniques directly from his compositional and rhetorical milieu. Chapter 4, The King Follett Dis Sermon Visions in the Searstone offers Joseph Smith's April 7, 1844 King Follett Sermon to further support that Joseph organized his sermons according to laying down heads. The claim is problematic because on that day, Smith began at 3 p.m., according to Wilford Woodruff, or 3.15, according to Willard Richards, speaking about the recent death of church member King Follett, ending at 5.30, according to Thomas Bullock. This chapter in Visions in a Searstone is less useful because no verbatim text of the speech was recorded. Besides Bullock, Woodruff, and Richards, William Clayton also took notes, which were later amalgamated and printed in the church's newspaper, The Times and Seasons. None of these five accounts includes more than 5,000 words. Average orators speak between 100 and 150 words per minute. Even if Joseph Smith spoke at a very slow pace, he would have articulated over twice as many words in more than two hours as found in any of the available accounts. It could be argued that since we do not possess an accurate transcript of Joseph Smith's address, verifying nuanced characteristics like the use of headings is impossible. He probably did use summary phrases to introduce new ideas, but available evidences do not allow a strict conclusion. Chapter 5, Sermon Culture in the Book of Mormon Chapter 5 seeks to further convince the reader that the text of the Book of Mormon reveals how the pervasive sermon culture of Smith's world had firmly imprinted itself on his imagination, influencing the style, organization, and content of his prophetic voice. Besides the 21 printed headings in the Book of Mormon, 14 for chapters and 7 for individual books, Visions in a Searstone identifies numerous other concealed heads. Rather than announcing explicit and discreet heads for his sermon, Smith, like many of his contemporary semi-extemporaneous preachers, abandoned the preliminary announcement of each and every main topic in the sermon and substituted a general introduction instead. Sermon construction and delivery thus reveal the presence of concealed heads or concealed method rather than an overt explicit style. According to Visions in a Searstone, the Book of Mormon is built on headings and heads, some overt and some hidden. Addressing the actual source of the headings found in the Book of Mormon, Visions in a Searstone posits Joseph Smith had prepared a mental outline prior to dictating. Quote, Whenever a sermon required information specific to the development of the narrative, Smith could prepare such main points beforehand meditate on key issues and information that he wanted to address, and then follow, however loosely, his mental outline in performance, all the while allowing for extemporaneous diversions and expansions along the way, 
Smith's approach to oral composition thereby reveals how he was able to produce lengthy passages in rapid and highly effective ways. End of quote. Chapter 6, Constructing Book of Mormon Historical Narratives. Chapter 6 further elaborates on two-step process of laying down heads. Introduced in Chapter 2, promoting the skeletal outlines as anchors to his dictation. The careful preparation of the story outline, the management of the sequence of events, the dates and location where they occur, and the characters involved would have been a critical and central anchor for the entire Book of Mormon. The carefully prepared outline then guided the dictation of sermons and historical narratives. Smith composed the story by following the same sequence established in the prefatory outline, using each of the opening phrases as a narrative guidepost to anchor his semi-extemporaneous performance of the storyline. This relationship between the prefatory outline and the main body of the text also provides important information about the characteristics of Smith's oral style and the composition of the Book of Mormon. Chapter 7, A Theory of Translation Chapter 7 begins by re-emphasizing a repeated theme regarding Joseph Smith's motives. Quote, Smith believed that his process of constructing the text did, in fact, involve divine inspiration and guidance. End of quote. Smith sincerely believed to one extent or another that the Book of Mormon represented an authentic history of ancient civilizations in the Americas. By ostensibly preserving his sincerity... Visions in a seer stone assures its readers that Joseph need not be seen as a fraud, even as he tried to pass off a work of fiction as divine scripture. Readers should not attribute his years-long process of preparation to deceptive motives, writes Visions in a seer stone. As observed above, the bulk of Visions in a seer stone discusses the presence of skeletal outlines and laying down heads in the text of the Book of Mormon. Chapter 7 describes a more comprehensive theory of translation that briefly acknowledges additional steps were required. The preparatory work was extensive. The process involved time, meditation, careful attention, and a good memory. Composing the Story Content Visions in a Seer Stone recognizes that prior to dictation, a preliminary process of careful preparation and narrative structuring for all the stories in the Book of Mormon occurred. In the years prior to 1829, Smith engaged in the early development of story content, story episodes, and narrative scenarios. Composing the Outlines Simultaneous with creating story content, Joseph Smith spent years constructing and revising preliminary outlines, not fully written manuscripts, that framed the work before dictating the current text in 1829. These outlines would have included the organization of such story elements as the many chronologies within the work. Memorization. Smith would also have had an extensive amount of time to rehearse and familiarize himself with the characters and narratives, thus only requiring, as the text often de demonstrates, the promptings of brief sketch outlines, individual mnemonic cues, or nothing more than his memory to recall story episodes. In fact, the large number of brief outlines and mnemonic cues in the Book of Mormon suggests that Smith was deeply and extensively familiar with the narratives long before expanding them in the moment of performance. Wordsmithing. The actual composition of the stories generally involved 
the expansion and amplification of summarizing outlines and mnemonic cues by means of semi-extemporaneous oral production in the real-time performance. To summarize all of these quotes from Visions in a Seer Stone, the years before 1829 involved composing and memorizing hundreds of stories and outlines. Then, during the dictation, Joseph Smith recited the outlines and amplified them extemporaneously into thousands of sentences his scribes recorded. Adding Assumptions A potential weakness of visions in a seer stone involves the types and quantity of supportive evidence that are cited. Historical documentation is seldom provided and is limited. Instead, multiple assumptions are built into its primary theory. These include, one, assuming ancient historians did not use summary headings in their historical compilations. Two, assuming that the text of the Book of Mormon can be used as evidence of Smith's natural intellectual abilities in 1829. Three, assuming that between 1823 and 1829, as a first-time novelist, Smith composed and outlined the story content for most of the Book of Mormon using his own creativity. Number four, assuming that by age 23, Smith developed a memorization system that enabled him to encode the stories and outlines that he had composed into his memory. Number five, assuming that during the dictation, Smith remembered the outlines and story ideas and then wordsmithed a long series of first draft oral sentences that was also a highly refined sequence of final draft sentences. The remainder of this article will address these assumptions. Assuming Book of Mormon historians would not use summary headings. The 1830 printing of the Book of Mormon contains 114 chapters. The 1981 edition has 240 and 15 books. Of these, 14 chapters and 7 books have heads or headings, which serve as brief introductory outlines ranging from 8 to 163 words in length. For the vast majority of Book of Mormon text that is not directly associated with these formal headings, Visions in a Seer Stone asserts, quote, Smith also embeds these outlines in the middle of narratives, incorporating them into the development of the stories themselves as concealed heads, end of quote. As discussed above, Visions in a Seer Stone considers virtually every line of the Book of Mormon to be a heading or an elaboration of a general heading. Assuming headings in the Book of Mormon are anachronistic. A foundational observation for the general theory advanced in Visions in a Seer Stone is that the presence of headings in the Book of Mormon is anachronistic. That is, Historians writing between 600 BCE and 400 CE would not have used such techniques, so their presence in the Book of Mormon comes from a much later century. Quote, because this contemporary technique was ubiquitous in the early 19th century and because Smith himself used this same technique to structure his other compositions, the presence of this common introductory and organizational method points to Smith as the most likely source, end of quote. The familiar sermon structure in the Book of Mormon is a glary anachronism, according to Visions in a Seer Stone, and the use of a skeletal outline is a prominent anachronism. Also, headings in the Book of Mormon are listed as reflecting the specific style and focus of an early career evangelical preacher in the 19th century of America. 
and also such techniques emerged in a different place and time than the period in which the stories of the Book of Mormon occurred, signaling the authoritative presence of a modern hand, end of quote. Despite these repeated claims, Visions in a Seerstone spends little time demonstrating how ancient historians consistently failed to include chapter headings in their comp compilations. Ancient historians used chapter summaries. A brief documentary review shows that placing explanatory prologues or introductions to written sections has been implemented by writers for millennia. Authors and orators did not wait until the modern era to recognize that adding preliminary summaries to discourses, whether spoken or written, could enhance the audience's comprehension. Dating from the 4th century BCE, the philosopher Aristotle wrote, quote, in prologues and in epic poetry, a foretaste of the theme is given, intended to inform the hearers of it in advance instead of keeping their minds in sus suspense, end of quote. Aristotle described the usefulness of, quote, a summary statement of your subject to put a sort of head on the main body of your speech, end of quote. Available evidence also supports that Josephus, writing his Antiquities of the Jews in the late first century, routinely used chapter headings, an example of which is shown in the article. Similarly, both Eusebius of Caesarea, composing ecclesiastical history in the early fourth century, and Augustine of Hippo, authoring The City of God in the early fifth century CE, placed summary, summaries called argumenta, preceding their chapters. It could be argued that any historian writing in any time and place would soon realize that giving an opening outline before elaborating could enhance the audience's understanding. This intuitive process is not particularly complex, but self-evident. Authors may not have called it laying down heads until the 19th century, but additional research shows it was employed thousands of years before Joseph Smith's birth. This data seems to contradict the assumption that writers in 540 BCE like Nephi or Jacob or 400 CE, Mormon or Moroni, would not have realized the value of summary headings and would not have inserted them in their writings. Proving the composition techniques that Nephite writers would have employed is impossible. But multiple evidences show that reserving such methodologies to 18th or 19th centuries is unjustified. Assuming that the text of the Book of Mormon is evidence of Joseph Smith's natural intellectual abilities in 1829. In its opening pages, Visions in a Seerstone declares perhaps its most important assumption that Joseph Smith composed the Book of Mormon using his, quote, individual creative efforts, end of quote, in 1829. For Visions in a Seerstone, the primary question is not where did all the words come from, but what intellectual methods did Joseph Smith employ as he generated all of the words? Visions in a Seerstone notes, quote, The historical records addressing Smith's habit of reading, study, meditation, and exhortation are spare and contested for his pre-Book of Mormon years, end of quote. Overcoming this lack of supportive historical evidence is facilitated by rejecting Smith's claim that divine influences were ultimately responsible. Instead, by assuming he created the text using his natural abilities, the text can then be used as evidence of his natural abilities at the time of the Book of Mormon dictation. 
Contradictions and silences in the historical record can be countered by appeals to the content of the Book of Mormon narrative. This occurs throughout visions in a seer stone with language like the text reveals and the text of the Book of Mormon provides important clues. And, quote, Smith's method of composition reveals an advanced understanding of 19th century compositional strategies and a fluency in their techniques. Such evidence undermines the hagiographical accounts of Smith as an ignorant farm boy and further uncovers the presence of a familiar and constricting trope. The humble and illiterate but righteous man who, in spite of his lack of formal training and education, is chosen by God to reveal important truths to mankind and to confound the wise and cynical men of the world. End of quote. Naturalists who already believe Joseph Smith created the Book of Mormon using his human skills, will agree with this assumption as it is applied repeatedly throughout visions in a seer stone. Indeed, they may argue no other approach should even be considered. Skeptical observers may recognize that every time visions in a seer stone references the text of the Book of Mormon to support its primary theory, it is appealing to evidence that is based upon an assumption. That assumption is unproven historically, but vigorously accepted contemporaneously and is different from data derived from the historical record. Assuming Joseph Smith possessed extraordinary compositional skills in 1829. Visions in a Searstone assumes that Smith began his work on the Book of Mormon long before he actually started to dictate the text. The production of the work involved a scenario in which he announced the existence of the gold plates containing the narrative of the Book of Mormon in September of 1823. From that point, Smith would have had a total of five and a half years from Moroni's first visit. During that time, Smith composed all of the narrative structure of his stories, including their placement within the overall plan of his epic work. The stories were carefully planned with preliminary summaries and embedded outlines that revealed the shape of the individual episodes, along with how those episodes fit within the larger scheme of the entire work. Specifically, his time was spent generating and developing ideas, choosing topics to address, establishing sequences of events, choosing names and places, and making any possible revisions along the way. To summarize, Joseph spent those years producing the sequence and contents of the narratives in the overall construction of the Book of Mormon. Concurrent with the composition of the content, Visions in a Seer Stone also reports that Smith was constructing and revising preliminary outlines, not fully written manuscripts that frame the work. These outlines are re referenced hundreds of times in Visions in a Seer Stone, often with adjective descriptors such as skeletal outlines, memorized outlines, mental outlines, preliminary outlines, and opening outlines. According to visions in a seer stone, these outlines were fully produced by 1829 and constituted, quote, a master plan for the entire Book of Mormon, end of quote. Lucy Max Smith's Recollection in support of Joseph Smith's 1823 compositional skills, Visions in a Searstone references Lucy Max Smith's recollection, quote, During our evening conversations, Joseph would occasionally give us some of the most amusing recitals that could be imagined. He would describe the ancient inhabitants of this continent, their dress, mode of travel, and the animals upon which they rode, their cities, their buildings, 
with every particular, their mode of warfare and also their religious worship. This he would do with as much ease, seemingly as if he had spent his whole life with them, end of quote. According to Visions in a Seer Stone, Lucy's account provides intriguing information that offers clues concerning the early stages of the creation of the Book of Mormon. Via, uh, Visions in a Seer Stone portrays these recitals as the tip of the oratory iceberg of Joseph's private Book of Mormon compositional activities. Quote, if Lucy's reminiscence is accurate, then this collection of raw story material suggests that young Joseph was in the earliest stages of his preparation during those evening storytelling adventures around the family hearth. End of quote. Assuming training in composition. Basic to any author's effort to compose a book is a rudimentary understanding of vocabulary, linguistic, grammar, and semantics. Equally important would be a fundamental knowledge of English, composition, and rhetoric. Visions in a Searstone asserts that Joseph Smith received many introductory composition lessons in common schools, that many of the oral techniques were integral components of introductory writing instruction in common schools with lessons involving the composition of themes, various imitation exercises, and a variety of short and expanded essays. In addition, Visions in a Searstone author, William L. Davis, published a 2016 article entitled Reassessing Joseph Smith Jr.'s Formal Education, where he dismisses as rhetorical effect Joseph's recollection that he was deprived of the benefits of education and merely instructed in reading, writing, and the ground rules of arithmetic. Instead, Davis asserts that Joseph's school curriculum would have been more accurately depicted if he had included reading, writing, arithmetic, basic rhetoric, composition, geography, and history. Unfortunately, Davis does not provide supportive evidence showing that Joseph Smith's district school included composition training or that it existed anywhere in rural New York in the 1820s. Quote, the great majority of the one-room elementary schools which sprang up over America in the early 19th century, wrote R. Freeman Butts and Lawrence A. Kremen in A History of Education in American Culture, were, quote, simple institutions providing a simple fair, educational fair. Reading, spelling, writing, and arithmetic constituted the principal elements in the offering, end of quote. If Smith received training in composition, it is unclear what writing instruments he would have used or what writing surfaces he would have written upon. In the 1820s, paper for writing was expensive and could be difficult to obtain in rural America. The original copy of the Book of Mormon was penned on five different types of paper, indicating that finding paper might have been a challenge. Joseph Knight Sr. remembered bringing a barrel of mackerel and some lined paper for writing to Joseph during the weeks of translation. Assumptions that Smith had ready access to paper sheets or a common blank book go beyond the evidence. Joseph Smith as a first-time novelist. As Joseph Smith's first book, the 269,320-word Book of Mormon's stands out in several different ways. Generally, a short story may be defined as containing up to 10,000 words, a novelette, 18,000, a novella, 
to 40,000 words and a novel as a long work of fiction of 40,000 words or more. The Book of Mormon's verbosity may have made it the longest book among those classified as fiction printed in 1830. As a first-time book author, Smith's education and age, accompanying the length and reading difficulty of the Book of Mormon, place him in a unique position when compared to other youthful authors. The Book of Mormon is longer, containing 50% more words than the next longest novel, and has a higher reading grade level than any other book written by an author 24 years of age or younger. As Robert Rees points out, famous authors do not produce their masterful works as their first compositions. Each accomplished author demonstrates a long gestation period during which he tried out his ideas, metaphors, allusions, coloring, points of view, personae, and rhetorical styles before tackling a larger, more complex, and more sophisticated form, whether as a collection of poems and essays, like Emerson, an extended personal narrative like Thoreau, a novel, Hawthorne and Melville, or a major poem like Whitman. There are no parallel triworks for Joseph Smith, nor any evidence of his apprenticeship as a writer. In fact, all the evidence points in the opposite direction. End of quote. An unkind historical record. A concession secularists continually resist is the reality that the historical record is immovably unkind to assumptions that Smith possessed remarkable intellectual skills in 1829 that could be applied to authoring a book. Isaac Hale remembered in 1834, quote, I became acquainted with Joseph Smith Jr. in November 1825. His appearance at that time was of a careless young man, not very well educated, end of quote. Prior to his baptism in the church, W.W. W. Phelps wrote, on January 15, 1831, affirming, quote, Joseph Smith is a person of very limited abilities in common learning, end of quote. In 1881, John H. Gilbert, the Book of Mormon typesetter and non-Latter-day Saint, was asked, quote, how do you account for the production of the Book of Mormon, Mr. Gilbert, then if Joseph Smith was so illiterate? End of quote. He answered, quote, well, that is a difficult question. It must have been from the Spalding romance. You have heard of that, I suppose. The parties here never could have been the authors of it, certainly. End of quote. An 1879 interview by William Blair of Joseph Smith's brother-in-law, Michael Morris, who married Emma's sister, Trial, relates, quote, Mr. Morris is not and never has been a believer in the prophetic mission of Joseph. He states that he first knew Joseph when he came to Harmony, Pennsylvania, an awkward, unlearned youth of about 19 years of age. Brother Cadwell inquired as to whether Joseph had sufficiently, sufficiently intelligent and talented to compose and dictate of his own ability the matter written down by the scribes. To this, Mr. Morris replied with decided emphasis, no. He said that he, Morris, then was not at all learned, yet he was confident he had more learning than Joseph then had. Mr. Cadwell inquired how, he, how Morris accounted for Joseph's dictating the Book of Mormon in the manner he had described. To this he replied, he did not know. End of quote. Multiple other accounts describe Joseph Smith as ignorant or illiterate. No accounts 
from those who knew him in 1829 portray Smith as intelligent enough to dictate the Book of Mormon. Assuming Joseph Smith possessed an extraordinary memory in 1829. Visions in a seer stone assumes that prior to 1829, Joseph Smith mentally composed the majority of the content to be included in the Book of Mormon and simultaneously committed all that data to memory. That content included material for nearly a hundred separate sermons, plot lines involving 209 distinct individuals, detailed discussions of olive tree husbandry and ancient Israelite law, over 100 guerrilla warfare encounters, and a geography with at least 125 different topographical locations and stories involving over 425 specific geographical movements. Any details that were not memorized would have needed to be spontaneously created in real time during the dictation. Visions in a Searstone describe how during the 18 to 23 1823 to 1829 period, Smith used the act of rehearsal to enhance his memory. He spent long time with his stories, meditating on them until he became sufficiently familiar with them for the stories to become entrenched in his mind. In doing so, such preparations and mental rehearsals would enhance his memory of the narratives. Smith would also have an extensive amount of time to rehearse and familiarize himself with the characters and narratives. The result, according to visions in a seerstone, was Smith's brain brimming with all the advanced knowledge, the advanced awareness, intimate knowledge, and familiarization with his stories needed for his oratory debut. Committing the Book of Mormon outlines and general content to memory. How much rehearsal would be necessary to prepare Joseph Smith for what visions in a seerstone characterizes as his oral performance? Any reader can answer by simply reviewing the 1830 Book of Mormon and deciding how many hours of repetition would be required to memorize details that would not be easily generated extemporaneously. Assuming Joseph Smith committed this amount of time to memorize is hampered by a couple of observations. First, while he reportedly created and committed all the mental outlines and stories to memory, he was also engaged in other activities, according to Visions in a Searstone, attending up to seven years of district schooling, working with his family, clearing land and in other enterprises, directing groups of treasure seekers with his Searstone, visiting bookstores and libraries to learn specific details about biblical law, olive tree husbandry, warfare, and other subjects, examining maps of the Middle Eastern geography to determine migration routes, memorizing parts of the Bible, and listening to preachers at multiple camp gatherings, Sunday school meetings, and revivals. A second concern involves the human limitations inherent in the memorization of such a large quantity of data by using rote repetition. Walter Ong, author of Orality and Literacy, argues that some kind of formulaic pattern or mnemonic memory system might be needed, quote, in an oral culture, to think through something non-formulaic, non-patterned, non-mnemonic terms, even if it were possible, would be a waste of time, for such thought, once worked through, could never be recovered with any effectiveness, as it would be with the aid of writing. It would not be a biting knowledge, but simply a passing thought, however complex." End of quote. Visions in a Searstone addresses this by asserting that the outlines Joseph Smith memorized were filled with mnemonic cues. 
that could help him recollect the stories and sermon core elements. Visions in a Seer Stone does not address how Smith was able to embed so many oratorical elements in his memory so that the mnemonic cues in a remembered outline could reliably trigger the other memorized story elements. Instead, Visions in a Seer Stone assumed that it could, and it did happen. Visions in a Seer Stone allows the possibility that Joseph Smith may have used a written manuscript. Quote, Smith could have easily written the entire plan of the Book of Mormon on roughly a dozen sheets of paper. If Emma had stumbled across any possible notes, they would likely have consisted of truncated outlines and cryptic mnemonic cues. And given that her experience as a scribe pertained to the beginning of the translation process, she arguably would not have known if any such notes had anything to do with the work, end of quote. As discussed above, assumptions that Joseph Smith penned outlines or any other form of notes are based upon speculation. Testing Joseph Smith's memory. In 1836, church leaders hired Joshua Satius to teach Hebrew to 40 students over the course of seven weeks, beginning on January 26th. Assessing Joseph Smith's ability to memorize is facilitated by reviewing his performance as he worked to learn Hebrew. Professors Elvira V. Masura and Susan E. Gathercole observe, quote, Research has revealed a close link between language acquisition and the capacity of the verbal component of working memory, end of quote. Historian Brent M. Rogers and others summarize Smith's participation, quote, By all accounts, Joseph Smith was a diligent student of Hebrew. After Oliver Cowdery returned to Kirtland with a quantity of Hebrew books on 20th of November, 1835, Joseph Smith commenced an earnest study of the language. Though he participated in the formal classes taught by Satius, he also devoted considerable time to studying the language on his own. Between November 23, 1835 and March 29, 1836, Joseph Smith's journal mentions his study of Hebrew, whether in class, with colleagues, or by himself, no fewer than 70 times, end of quote. Matthew Gray also observes, quote, In addition to attending his regular classes, Joseph asked Satius for private lessons to study. He worked ahead on translation assignments, he reviewed lessons on Sundays, and studied when he was sick, end of quote. After completing the class on March 30th, Satius issued Joseph Smith a certificate. Quote, Mr. Joseph Smith Jr. has attended a full course of Hebrew lessons under my tuition and has been indefatigable in acquiring the principle of the sacred language of the Old Testament scriptures in their original tongue. He has so far accomplished a knowledge of it, and he is able to translate to my entire satisfaction, and by prosecuting the study, he will be able to become proficient in Hebrew, end of quote. Here, Satius certified that after attending his class and study Hebrew on at, on at least 70 occasions, Joseph Smith could translate to his entire satisfaction, but he was not yet proficient in Hebrew. The 24-year-old Orson Pratt also attended the sessions and was apparently the only other student to receive a certificate. It read, during the winter, I attended the Hebrew school about eight weeks, in which time I made greater progress than what I could have expected in so short a period. 
I obtained a certificate from Jay Satius, our instructor, certifying to my capability of teaching that language. End of quote. By comparison, Joseph Smith learned to translate without becoming proficient, but Orson Pratt comprehended it enough to be certified as a teacher. Linguist Noam Chomsky stresses the existence of, quote, limitations on performance imposed by organization of memory, end of quote. These restrictions create performance boundaries for human cognitive function in any field requiring intellectual processing. Joseph Smith's well-documented episode learning Hebrew in 1836 identifies an apparent upward limit to his memory abilities seven years after dictating the Book of Mormon. At that time, his cognitive capacity to learn Hebrew was less than Orson Pratt's, who was six years his junior. By several standards, Pratt was intellectually gifted, but not superior to other geniuses in history and incapable of duplicating Smith's dictation of nearly 270,000-word book from memory. Assuming Joseph Smith could wordsmith an oral first draft, that is also a refined final draft in real time. As discussed above, Visions in a Seerstone assumes that by April 7, 1829, Smith had mentally warehoused hundreds of thoughts, outlines, facts, and other linguistic data. These oratory elements would have been almost useless unless he could package them into polished phrases and paragraphs. As Linda Flowers and John Hayes, author of the article A Cognitive Process Theory of Writing, observe, quote, Having good ideas doesn't automatically produce good prose. End of quote. Visions in a Seerstone describes how Joseph Smith used his semi extemporaneous performance skills to dictate a protracted series of first draft phrases that were also refined final draft sentences. In the interest of transparency and full disclosure, the intrinsic difficulties associated with this assumed activity must be comprehended by those willing to accept Vision and Seerstone's overall theory. A Naturalistic Description of Joseph Smith's Most Difficult Accomplishment Helpful context might be found by answering the question, what was the most difficult thing Joseph Smith ever accomplished from a naturalistic perspective? Possible responses include... 1. Organizing a new church. 2. Creating a new theology that embraced and rejected aspects of predominant Christianity. 3. Leading a small army over hundreds of miles of terrain. 4. Rallying followers to build a temple, one of the largest structures in, a, in Ohio at the time. 5. Enduring over six months of incarceration under dreadful conditions. 6. Secretly introducing a plurality of wives and convincing women to marry him polygamously. Seven, acting as mayor for the largest city in Illinois in the 1840s. Or eight, running for president of the United States. While each of these achievements required Joseph Smith to meet and overcome challenges, arguably the most difficult feat was the real-time process of dictating nearly 7,000 very long sentences averaging almost 40 words each, that were so precisely constructed that they needed no resequencing. The difficulty of mentally converting first draft phrases into final draft sentences. 
The primary challenge of what Visions in a Seerstone describes as Joseph Smith's semi-extemporaneous oral performance of the Book of Mormon involved the mental processing of all the data required to produce a continuous stream of final draft sentences. Traditionally, book authors move from first draft to final draft through multiple written revisions. In her college textbook, Steps to Writing Well, Jean Wirick emphasizes the importance of revising the initial drafts. Quote, The absolute necessity of revision cannot be overemphasized. All good writers rethink, rearrange, and rewrite large portions of their prose. Revision is a thinking process that occurs anytime you are working on a writing project. It means looking at your writing with a fresh eye. That is, re-seeing your writing in ways that will enable you to make more effective choices throughout your essay. Revision means making important decisions about the best ways to focus, organize, develop, clarify, and emphasize your ideas. Virtually all writers revise after re-seeing a draft in its entirety. End of quote. Other authors agree. Louis Brandeis, who served as the Associate Justice on the Supreme Court of the United States from 1916 to 1939, coined a common maxim for authors. There is no good writing. There is only good rewriting. Popular novelist and essayist Robert Louis Stevenson explicates, When I say writing, oh, believe me, it is rewriting that I have chiefly in mind. Bernard Malamud one of the best-known American Jewish authors of the 20th century agrees. First drafts are for learning what your novel or story is about. Revision is working with that knowledge to enlarge and enhance an idea, to reform it. I usually write about 10 or more less complete drafts, confides Pulitzer Prize winner Tracy Kidder. Each one usually, though, not always closer to the final thing. Lynn Quitman Troika, writing in Simon & Schuster's Handbook for Writers, explains, quote, Writers, Writing takes time. Ideas do not leap onto the paper in final polished form. Not only do writers need to go through the various activities of the writing process, but they also need time to get distance from the draft so that they can revise with fresh eyes, end of quote. Anne Lamott, author of Bird by Bird, Some Instructions on Writing and Life, declares, quote, I know some very great writers, writers you love and who write beautifully and have made a great deal of money, and not one of them sits down routinely feeling wildly enthusiastic and confident. Not one of them writes elegant first drafts, end of quote. Betty Maddox-Deesh, author of Reasoning and Writing Well, concurs, quote, Some of the inexperienced writers think they have hit the jackpot on their first draft. They evade the fact that every explanatory draft needs more work, end of quote. Dozens, if not hundreds, of similar statements can be found in publications dealing with creative writing. In contrast, an extensive search of the literature fails to identify even one advocate of a process where a dictated first draft should also be the final draft. Neither does it appear that any genius-level authors have ever produced a book of even 50,000 words using this technique. Robert Reese explains, In all of the literary history, there is not a single example to match such an accomplishment. 
if Joseph Smith composed the Book of Mormon out of his imagination and in the manner in which his scribes say he did, and we have no reason to disbelieve them, he is the only writer in human history to have accomplished such a feat. End of quote. Human Mental Capacity and Real-Time Editing The reason why creative writers universally use written drafts to revise their manuscripts is undoubtedly due to the large number of literary variables that need to be manipulated to refine the text and finalize the message. The process does not deal with single data chunks or individual words, Instead, phrases, sentences, paragraphs, and even chapter-length word strings are involved. In a landmark 1956 article entitled The Magical Number 7 Plus or Minus 2, Some Limits on Our Capacity for Processing Information, George A. Miller, a professor of psychology at Harvard, described research data supporting that the human brain can process about seven chunks of data at a time. When the brain's cerebral channel capacity exceeds that number, confusion and errors will result. Quote, the span of absolute judgment and the span of immediate memory impose severe limitations on the amount of information that we are able to receive, process, and remember. There seems to be some limitation built into us, either by learning or by design of our nervous systems, a limit that keeps our channel capacities in this general range of five to nine data chunks, end of quote. While dozens of additional studies have examined Miller's conclusions, his primary observation that the human mind has limited abilities to process information has been repeatedly corroborated. Developing characters, stories, sermons, summary headings, and skeletal outlines to be included in the Book of Mormon would have been intellectually challenging to Joseph Smith. Likewise, Cerebrally composing the initial phraseology by processing multiple converging pre-language data streams from memory and imagination would have consumed significant intellectual bandwidth. Those first draft phrases would have included word blocks that varied in length, syntax, semantics, nuance, and significance. Mentally revising such linguistic collections into finished final draft sentences that retained coherency with the previous paragraphs and that anticipated the messages of the next dictation would seemingly be the most difficult cognitive process to complete. Noam Chomsky observes, a record of natural speech will show numerous false starts, deviations from rules, and changes of plan in mid-course, and so on. Quote, Practice would likely diminish such verbal miscues, but the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon includes very few, if any. The first draft Joseph Smith dictated to his scribes went straight to the printer without any rewriting. For Huffington Post blogger Jack Kelly, the fact that Joseph Smith did not revise a single word before its initial printing was, in his words, jaw-dropping. Joseph Smith made over a thousand edits in the wording in the 1837 and 1840 printings of the Book of Mormon. Most were single or double word changes designed to update grammar and spelling. None involved restructuring or moving an entire sentence. Even accounting for all the subsequent textual alterations, the editorial clarity of the original dictation is remarkable. Assuming training as an orator. 
According to Visions in a Seer Stone, Joseph Smith obtained the necessary rhetorical skills to dictate the Book of Mormon prior to age 23. Whether at home, school, church, work, or any number of other social and civic gatherings, cultural institutions in post-revolutionary America taught, developed, and encouraged oratorical skills at a level unparalleled in 21st century American practices. The ability to amplify and expand outlines into finalized narratives was, according to Visions in a Searstone, a skill common enough among revivalist preachers and indeed students in common school classrooms. The extemporaneous compositional techniques he learned were presumably sufficient to flesh out and even pursue extemporaneous tangents during the recitation. In 1851, Orsamus Turner reported that Joseph Smith, quote, was a very passable exhorter, end of quote, at Methodist meetings. Visions in a Searstone refers to Smith's training as an exhorter over 20 times. Smith's attendance at Methodist class meetings and his efforts as an unlicensed exhorter would have exposed him to a religious environment dedicated to the principle of rigorous education and systematic self-improvement. The uh, Visions in a Searstone states also, his training as a lay Methodist exhorter would have further imprinted those patterns, language, and topics of exhortation. And it concludes, Joseph's participation was evidently sufficient for him to absorb a measure of Methodist preaching and exhortation techniques, end of quote. However, Visions in a Searstone fails to inform readers that Joseph never formally joined the Methodists and his involvement with them lasted just a few months from the fall of 1824 to the winter of 1825. Perhaps more problematic is that the visions in a seerstone does not mention that in the same book, Turner describes Smith as, quote, possessing less than ordinary intellect, end of quote. When placed in a fuller historical framework, assuming Smith received training and excelled as a Methodist exhorter is unsupported. Assuming Smith's ability to dictate fluently and semi-extemporaneously, Visions in a Searstone repeatedly emphasize that Joseph Smith's ability to first dictate an outline and then create the refined sentences semi-extemporaneously. Smith, quote, dictated a skeletal outline of the summarizing heads to his scribe, after which he amplified or planned to amplify each of the heads into fully developed passages. Quote, and moving on, in quote, the textual evidence clearly reveals that these structural tools most obviously in the form of anticipatory narrative outlines, prompted and guided the semi-extemporaneous oral production of the work. These prompts allowed Smith the ability to move directly and fluently from carefully prepared mental skeletons and familiar mnemonic cues to the rapid dictation of the full text. Indeed, the process of combining these specific structures Structuring devices with efficient oral performance techniques reflects the same compositional and semi-extemporaneously delivery methods in popular use among the evangelical preachers in Smith's own vibrant sermon culture, end of quote. According to Visions in a Searstone, the actual talent that enabled Joseph Smith to create final draft sentences in real time was one of advanced improvisational techniques. Quote, the evidence also suggests that Smith's flexible semi-extemporaneous method left much of the actual language of the work, along with the amplification of narrative, sermons, tangential topics, and story elements, to improvisations in the moment of performance, end of quote. In reality, 
Asserting Joseph Smith could expertly improvise is more of a description than an explanation. It is like claiming the sun emits heat because it is hot, rather than describing how hydrogen atoms fuse to form helium in a process that radiates light and heat. It is true that some forms of behavior do not need detailed explanations because they are so common. If I say John drove to town, I don't need to describe how he opened the door of his car, turned on the ignition, pushed on the gas, and turned the steering wheel. Those events are so routine that listeners will assume they occurred without additional data. Yet, assuming that Joseph Smith possessed the skills in 1829 to create nearly 7,000 refined sentences as a continuous oral performance in fewer than three months is less justified because it is a process seemingly unparalleled by intellectuals historically. This assumption could represent a leap of logic that goes largely unrecognized by secularists due to a lack of proper scientific scrutiny or simply due to their confidence that since supernatural influences do not exist, a naturalistic explanation must exist, even if the details are unavailable. K.A. Erickson explained, there is a relatively widespread conception that if individuals are innately talented, they can easily and rapidly achieve an exceptional level of performance once they have acquired basic skills and knowledge. Erickson adds in his article, biographical material disproves this notion, end of quote. No other recollections of possible composition activities. Visions in a Seerstone assumed Smith was involved in a comprehensive list of linguistic activities between 1823 and 1829, including story and outline development, Methodist exhorting, and practicing for his future oratorical effort or oral performance. If so, others might have noticed, but little supportive evidence has been found beyond the recitals mentioned by his mother, Lucy Mack Smith, which she dated to 1823. For example, in 1834, Eber D. Howe printed the statements from 22 local inhabitants along with two group statements from the residents of Manchester and Palmyra. In July 1880, newspaperman Frederick G. Mather recorded detailed recollections from 12 re residents of Susquehanna, Broome, and Chenango counties, Pennsylvania. In 1888, Arthur Dane published statements from 14 individuals in two volumes of Naked Truths About Mormonism. Many of these individuals knew the Smith family and Joseph Smith personally, but none describe him as an orator, writer, or a scholar capable of authoring the lengthy, a lengthy complex book. Richard Bushman reports that Joseph Smith is not known to have preached a sermon prior to the churches organized in 1830. He had no reputation as a preacher. If Joseph spent the thousands of hours composing a book and practicing for an oral performance as Visions in a Seerstone describes, he must have been extremely secretive. Any such behavior would probably have been recalled by critics in the years immediately after the publication of the Book of Mormon as they sought to explain its true origin. Conclusion the limited number of well-developed ideas presented by William L. Davis in Visions in a Seerstone are a very welcome addition to the body of Book of Mormon scholarship. Representing the most detailed secular explanation for the origin of the Book of Mormon published to date, 
it breaks new ground on a field of study that is surprisingly barren. However, as a comprehensive explanation describing all the cognitive processes Joseph Smith would necessarily have employed while dictating the Book of Mormon, the theory presented in Visions in a Seerstone is rather anemic. Only the transfusion of a large number of major assumptions can resuscitate Vision in a Seerstone's theory to make it viable. Several of the assumptions are problematic, like the idea that ancient historians would not use summary headings. Similarly, the claim that Joseph Smith possessed the intellectual gifts needed to produce the Book of Mormon naturally is contradicted by multiple reliable historical sources. It appears that secularists still await the identification of a plausible hypothesis that explains how such a long, complex book could be dictated in a single draft in, a, in fewer than three months by a poorly educated 23-year-old individual. Brian Hales is the author of multiple books on Joseph Smith and plural marriage and is currently studying the topic of the Book of Mormon origin. This has been a recording of Theories and Assumptions, a review of William L. Davis's Vision in a Seerstone by Brian C. Hales, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, read by Brian C. Hales. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and its website are credited, and it is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.